Good morning, everyone. Welcome to another edition of our uh, Monday morning live devotionals on Facebook and on whatever podcast app you're listening to. Again, I'm trying. My goal of this is to three things. It is to one, uh, just uh, help us see how we kind of look at this devotionally. I don't have any big script on this. We're just uh, looking at kind of reflections I take from my devotions on this to help you. Uh, and two, we want that to help you love Jesus more. And three, I want to convince you to start using podcasts because it is so much better than any other medium for listening to things and following things and speeding things up and doing all that. And so if I have done um, some of those things, I am grateful. Um, but let's focus on the first two this morning. Um, we're working through the F260 Bible reading plan still. And we are entering, uh, we've been in since I think last Thursday, the book of Jeremiah, following the history of Israel. And just some, I'm going to summarize what we looked at today. Today we looked at the last half of Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah 32, and Jeremiah 33, which are important passages, not only in understanding the Old Testament, but also in understanding the New Testament. And so we'll talk about that a little bit. Um, but before we get into summarizing that, I just want to summarize where we are real quick in Israel's history. And so I believe it was um, last week, uh, we saw the fall of Israel. I think that's correct. Maybe that was two weeks ago. Um, but in 722 BC, uh, Israel, uh, the northern tribe of Israel fell and was conquered by the Assyrians. They got taken away into captivity. We don't read much about the northern tribe of Israel. And why did they fall? Well, they were judged because of their sinfulness. And so God left this remnant, the southern kingdom of Judah, because remember at this point, after the fall of the Davidic and Solomon dynasty, the kingdom was split in two. Um, kind of this internal civil war, right? What we see primarily through the Old Testament is that the good of the king is for the good of the people. Bad kings divide people, good kings unite people, and that leads us to Jesus. But in a world where Jesus is not yet the true king of his people, we have a divided kingdom. Israel falls in 722 BC, and um, the southern king of Judah is going to fall in 786 BC to the Babylonian Empire. And so you've been reading in Jeremiah. I think we saw, we've seen uh, Nebuchadnezzar alluded to. We're going to see the Chaldeans and Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon alluded to in our text today. And um, 586 is when they are entirely conquered, but we are kind of in the in-between range. And so we are not yet to 586. Did I say 526? I meant 586. We're not quite to 586 BC yet. Um, in our history of Israel, because what happened is Babylonia, uh, the Babylon Empire came into Jerusalem, and first they just kind of took the best and the brightest. And so that's where we'll read some of um, Daniel's people, right? We saw, I think, in our reading on Friday, they took the artists and the, the educated people and the tradesmen. And basically, anybody who had social value to the secular empire, they were taken, they were moved and put in Babylon, and then there was still a remnant left in Jerusalem. And so the people of Israel are kind of split in these two places right now, some in Babylon, some in Jerusalem. Um, but what we're going to see predicted today is the entire fall of Jerusalem. Those who are left in the promised land, they also will be destroyed and removed. And it's actually going to be that remnant that's in Babylon, which will come back um, and uh, be the root of God's faithful remnant, which will ultimately lead to Jesus, which will ultimately lead to um, the true grafting of the church into Israel in the new covenant, which is what we're looking at today. So if that seemed convoluted, it was. It's eight in the morning. 
um, and it's Monday. So this is the pastor's hangover day. So I'm sorry if that is. Um, but what we are going to look at now is this brief high-level summary of what we're looking at in Jeremiah 31. And what we see here is uh, one of two, the, another one is in Ezekiel, really clear passages on what is called the New Covenant. And uh, one thing we see in history in the Old Testament is God's salvation and judgment are always inter intermingled, right? There is uh, only salvation because we have judgment, right? We wouldn't need to be saved if we didn't have a problem. But since Genesis 3, when sin introduced itself, we have a problem. And from that judgment, that death, that uh, separation of our relationship from God and that complication of our relationship with one another, we need to be saved from that. And uh, so that's where this idea of salvation comes. But every time we see salvation in the Old Testament, it's kind of mixed with a little bit of judgment, right? There is the flood and God saves Noah and his family, but he is saved through the waters, through the waters that judge everybody else, salvation through judgment. Then we get to Abraham and there's this wonderful um, imagery of this Abraham's faithfulness that was God's call to sacrifice his son, Isaac. And he gets up there and Isaac is saved. He A substitute is provided, but then that substitute ram is killed. Salvation and judgment. And then we see the exodus and there is the Passover and there is salvation. Israel is saved, but there is judgment. The lamb is sacrificed and there is judgment on the people of uh, Exodus. The Red Sea, there is salvation coming through the water, but there is judgment. The water closes in on those that are sinful. And then so we see this trend increasing. Whenever we see God's salvation in the Old Testament, we also see judgment. And this is why we see those two things tied together is because when we're talking about salvation and judgment, we're talking about God's love and God's holiness. If God is holy, that means he cannot tolerate that which is sinful. It is dangerous. God is fire. Sin is gasoline. It consumes that. And so the problem is uh, not that God is holy. The problem is that we are sinful. But how does a God love those who are sinful when that God is holy? And that's where salvation and judgment have to meet. How does a holy God draw near to himself in love a sinful people? Well, the answer in scripture is through God's covenants. It is through God's covenants where God is going to deal with the sin of his people and bring them into a safe relationship with himself. We saw a covenant after the flood where God promises to no longer destroy the whole world on account of sin. We saw a covenant to Abraham where God was promising to gather a people to himself. We saw a covenant with David where God promised um, to bring a king who would rule his people and, and establish the kingdom and the hearts that we need to see established. We see a covenant in the law. Um, this precedes the Davidic covenant, obviously the, the covenant of the law where God promises that if the people obey this law, they will flourish in God's kingdom and God will cover their sins by the sacrificial system. And so these are the covenants we've seen up until this point. And now we get to something which is called the new covenant. And this is kind of being talked about in uh, chapters 31, 32, and 33. And we see this commingling of salvation and of judgment. It starts by being introduced um, with in verse 31 of chapter 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt. My covenant they broke, that's the law, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. 
I'll put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And so in the first part, we see this recitation, this promise of this new covenant that God is going to give, a covenant not applied from the outside in, but from the inside out. And we're following the narrative of Jeremiah here. And so we run into Jeremiah, who's in prison. And why is he in prison? Because in the political upheaval of Nebuchadnezzar conquering Jerusalem, he's told the king of Judah that indeed he's going to fall to Babylon. And he doesn't like that. So he's in prison. And we read about this, um, this prophecy that was fulfilled about this field. Um, why is this field important, this field that was bought and then sold? Because Jeremiah says that even though Israel is being conquered, there will be a time in the land of Israel again where fields will be built, property will be bought and sold. In other words, this judgment that is coming from Babylon is not the end. There will be salvation. There will be flourishing afterwards. Why? And then it goes on. Why is Judah being judged? Because of their sin, right? We see this. It is because they rejected um, God's promise. You brought your people out of Israel. This is verse 21. Out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders and a strong hand, outstretched arm with great terror. And you gave them this land, which you swore to their fathers, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they entered and took possession of it, but they did not obey your voice or walk in your law. They did nothing of all you commanded them to do. Therefore, you have made all this disaster come upon them. So even though they're being judged by Babylon because of their sin, there will be a time where God restores them. And that's what we read in the, the rest of chapter 32 and 33 is this mingling of God saying, you're going to be judged, but you're going to flourish. You're going to be pulled away in exile, but I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to strip away the, the celebration of the wedding, but in the end, I'm going to bring the celebration of the wedding back. You might say that I have neglected you, but you will see that I have not forgotten you. And so this is this new covenant. How is God going to solve the problem of a people who in the Old Testament keep sinning and keep needing to be saved? Is this cycle of endless judgment and salvation just going to continue? No, God is going to once and for all provide a new covenant which will fix the broken heart of the people and save them and cause them to flourish in God's kingdom. And so that's what we're looking at here. Um, in Jeremiah 31 through 33. And so as we're doing right now, all we're doing is kind of, I'm, I just wrote down some notes. You can see them here just from my morning devotions. Um, and so I try to find two things for each category. When we look at this text and we look up, what does this teach us about God? When we look at this text and look in, what does this teach us about ourselves? And then we look out and say, what does this teach us about the way we live as Christians, as church members, as husbands or wives or brothers or sisters, friends, roommates, all of that stuff. So um, hopefully you have a chance to read this. If not, um, if you're listening to this on podcast or something, you could pause it, read it, and then uh, you can join us again as we look up right now. So what did I see about God in this text? Well, we certainly see God's holiness, right? God is promising and faithfully achieving judgment, right? This is not a metaphorical judgment. There's a time as parents where um, sometimes we threaten our kids with discipline, not intending to actually discipline them, but just wanting to curb their, their actions. And that's not a good parenting tactic, right? We don't, uh, we don't make empty threats of discipline and neither does God. Right? God is willing to follow through with it, where we as sinful parents sometimes aren't. We just want them to be scared, but then we're too, we don't love them enough to actually discipline them. 
But God is faithful. Not only does he love us and want to discipline us so we will learn, but he is holy and wants to judge the sin that harms his people and hurts his glory. But despite that, this is what I see. We see God's desire for a broken and repentant people. What I love about this new covenant language is we see God's desire for his people. The very people who up until this point in the narrative of history are just forgetful and foolish and dumb. People who are just like us. But look at what we see and, and listen to the language in chapter 32 verses uh, 37 through, thir- through 40. Behold, I will gather them, that's Israel, from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and in my wrath and in my great indignation. So there he's saying, my anger, my judgment drove them into exile, and yet I will bring them back to this place. I will make them dwell in safety, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and for the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. What an astounding truth. God will not turn away from doing good to those who are part of his new covenant. And I will rejoice in doing them good. Not only will he do good, but he will delight to do good for them. And I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and with all my soul. And so there we see God's desire is not just to do good. God's desire is to desire to do good to his people who are in his new covenant. What a good God. We also see this in Jeremiah 33 verse 9. In this city, so he's speaking of Jerusalem here, and he's bringing all the exiles back to God's holy city. He's given them one heart. He's put his spirit in them. He has made them to obey his law. This city shall be to me a name of joy, a praise and a glory before all the nations. In other words, like God's saying, it shall be to me a city, a name of joy. God is delighting in his redemption of his people um, before all the nations of the earth who shall hear of the good that I do before him. What are people going to know Jerusalem by? They're going to know Jerusalem and the people who are part of God's covenant as people to whom God has done good things. When they think of that, they don't think of military might. They don't think of the peace that comes from being in God's rule. They think of, they are envious that we are a people whose God has done good things for us. And we saw that back in Deuteronomy, right? Where um, uh, Moses says that this law is so good that I'm giving to you that other nations will say, what nation has a God so good as this God to give people rules as good as this? Right? We sometimes forget that God wants good for us when it comes to our obedience and God's legislation he gives us in our lives. They shall fear and tremble because of all the good and prosperity I provide for it. God's good for his redeemed people, for his covenant people, is astounding. It is a blanket that covers us with more than we could ever imagine. All of the good that you think you could find in this world is nothing compared to the good that the cosmic God of the world wants to do for you. Um, my wife and I, we're, 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 
I'll say it. I don't think she'll be offended by this. We're generally bad gift givers to each other. Um, we live pretty simply. We don't have a lot of wants. And if we do, uh, our wants are big and things that we can't afford. <laughs> and so we uh, we typically tell each other, all right, this is how much money you can spend. So Father's Day is coming up. And she's like, how much money can I spend on you for Father's Day? So she wants to do good for me, but she realizes she has limited ideas and limited resources. And she generally does far better with those than I do with her. But when God wants to do good for his covenant people, he has unlimited resources and unlimited ideas because he's the one who created us. He's the Lord of the, and ruler of the whole world. And he wants to do good to his covenant people. Why? Because he is a good and loving God. That's what he wins us back to in his salvation is his immense goodness. And it is our foolishness. And it shows the, the deceit of sin when we stubbornly want to refuse that. Because that's what sin says. Sin looks at that and says, that's really not good. I'd rather have the $50 gift limit. I'd rather settle for white elephant gift exchanges my whole life than a vacation at the sea of God's grace. And so we see God's good for his people. And um, one thing that we saw in, we've seen in Jeremiah, is Jeremiah uses three primary metaphors, uh, at least in the text we've been in, to talk about God. He talks about God as a father. He talks about God as a husband. And he talks about God as a shepherd. And that is part of God's desire for his people we see in this text in uh, chapter 33, verse 14, where he's again predicting the return. And he says, in the cities of the hill country and in the cities of Shephelah and in the cities of the Negev and in the land of Benjamin and in the places of Jerusalem and in the cities of Judah. Why is he listing all these things? Because he's just showing how pervasive it is. In all of these cities, flocks shall again pass under the hands of the one who counts them, says the Lord. Man, how good is it to know, right? We live in a, in a chaotic world, in a chaotic time. If we are part of this covenant that God is talking about here, which we still need to see how we, right? We're not Israel. Um, if, we, if we need to see how we are part of this covenant, be, we want to see how we're part of this covenant because in the chaos of this world, we want to know that someone has counted us. Someone has considered us. That there's a shepherd who watches over us and loves us and knows, regardless of which city we are on or what hill, that we are numbered according to his flock. This is the good shepherd heart of God. We also see God's covenant faithfulness. And so we might say, how do we know that God will do this for his people? And you should perhaps say this to yourself. How do you know that God would treat you this way? Well, look at the kind of eternal language he's talking about. What violates this covenant? In the past, we see, saw things that would violate the covenant, right? To break the law would be to break the law. For Abraham to not have his kids be circumcised would to break the covenant of circumcision. Um, for David to sin and to not lead him this way might lead the, the kingdom to disrepair, which is what happened. But what of this covenant? How certain is this? Well, listen to the language. There are three specific passages here. Um, uh, chapter 31, verse 35. Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and fix the order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the seas so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. So what's the point in saying that? He's saying, because I'm the God who created all this stuff, I can't lose track of my own word, <laughs> right? It is just as... Uh, certain that God exists, that God would let the covenant that he spoke depart from him. It is dependent not upon his people, but it is dependent upon God's faithfulness. It is rooted in this God who, who fixed the light by day. He continues, in case you didn't get it. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens can be measured, 
Can we measure the heavens? Can the foundations of the earth be explored? Then I will cast off the offspring of Israel for all they have done, declares the Lord. And so he's admitting that Israel has done bad, that ought to cause the covenant to be thrown off. People are sinful. And yet, God will only disregard this kingdom if we can uh, get on the next SpaceX mission and find the edge of the heavens. Or if we can journey to the center of the earth and live in earth's magmatic core. Is that even a word? I don't know. Um, but the point is, this this hypothetical um, disreality. That can't happen. <laughs> Nothing is going to separate, this, not even the people's sin, if they are part of God's covenant people, it will not separate you from God's covenant to do you good. We also see this in chapter 33, verses 14 through 16. Um, no, excuse me. We're going to see this in uh, 22. As the hosts of heaven cannot be numbered and the sands of the sea cannot be measured, so will I multiply the offspring of David, my servant, and the Levitical priests who, who minister to me. Um, and right before that, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night so that the day and night will not come at their appointed time, then also will my covenant with my servant David be broken. In other words, it's not going to be broken. God is going to keep his covenant according to his mercy, according to his might. And where do we see this ultimately? Well, this is where it's important for us to pay attention. We see this in chapter 33, um, verse 14. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah in those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up from David. He shall execute judgment and righteousness in the land. And in those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And the name by which it will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. Who is this branch by which we are granted into this covenant? the branch of David, Jesus Christ, the one who Matthew connects to this line, who is not only the king from the line of David, but he is also, verse 18, and the Levitical priest shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings and burnt grains forever to make sacrifices forever. Jesus is not only the true king from the line of David, he is the true priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. He is the one who rules his people, but also makes intercession with his people. So how is it that all of these good new covenant promises, this being remade from the inside out, this having a God desire to do you good, to dwell securely in his covenant forever, how do we get that? We get that through his covenant given to us in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who upholds God's salvation and God's judgment. Jesus is judged because our sin demands it. But because of his covenant through Jesus, we are saved through his judgment. Salvation and judgment intermingle in Jesus and bring us into this long prophesied new covenant where our hearts, which we'll come back to in a second, are made completely new. So that's what we see when we look at God. And that was a long section. This passage is mostly about God. And we just sit and be recipients of his wonderful grace through Jesus Christ as new covenant believers. Um, and that's where we get, perhaps you've heard that phrase, new covenant believers. You've wondered what that comes from. That comes from this, right? We are not according to the covenant of the law. We're not according to um, the covenant of works. We're according to this covenant, God's covenant of grace through Jesus Christ. So when we look in, I'll try to be faster for this. Um, what do we see? Well, we see first the maturity of Christian hope. 
those of you who listened to the sermon yesterday at Sovereign Hope, you heard this. I heard it once said, I thought it was beautiful, that maturity is just having expanded time horizons, right? I should expect my seven-year-old to understand that he needs to wait a little bit longer to eat, and I should expect him to be able to understand that and endure that more than I understand, than I expect my six-month-old daughter to do that, right? The older we get, the, the better we can handle the, a concept of time and how it affects our actions. And here we see in chapter 33, 23 through 26, up until this point, um, we have just seen the wonderful things that God is going to do to his people, Israel. And yet these people are really in exile. They are really in a hard place. And look at how they, um, how uh, it's described here in verses 23 through 26. The response of the people is what I want us to hear. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Have you not observed that these people, that's Israel, what are these people saying in light of this wonderful new covenant promise? Well, they certainly must be saying, oh, how great it is to have a God like this. We will put our hope in him. They said this instead. The Lord has rejected, has the Lord rejected the two clans he chose, that being Israel and Judah? Thus, the people have, they have despised my people so that they are no longer a nation in their sight. Thus says the Lord, if I have not established my covenant with the night and day and fixed the order of heaven and the earth, then I will reject the offspring of David, my servant, and I will not choose one of his offspring to rule over the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for I will restore their fortunes and I will have mercy on them. So what is um, God saying to Jeremiah? He's saying these people don't get it. These people look at exile. They look at the hardships of life and they think that God has only rejected them. They think that I have forgotten them. But I will restore their fortunes. I will have mercy on them. And when I think of our own heart, it is so easy to judge our standing with God based on the circumstances we have in life. If we are having a hard time in life, it's easy to think that God has forgotten us. If we are having a good time in life, whether it is good according to worldly standards or to biblical standards, we assume that God is pleased with us. But here we see the right way in which we can understand God's pleasure towards us um, when we think rightly on our circumstances in life is when we begin to understand our circumstances and our hope through God's covenant. And that covenant is still in this broken world. There are going to be times where we suffer because of our own sin. There will be times we suffer from the sin of those around us. There will be times where we suffer from just a fallen humanity in itself. And in those moments, we ought not to say, has God forgotten us? Certainly he doesn't care about us. Because we have seen the fullness of God's covenant in Jesus Christ. We know that all of these impossible hypotheticals that God has given regarding when his covenant can fall away has been proven in Jesus that it cannot fall away from us. We have been filled with his Holy Spirit as a seal of this inheritance. We have been promised an eternal heaven. And so when we encounter hardships in this world, we need to have that maturity of hope to say, God has not forgotten me. And how do you know that? because we know what Jesus has done for us. And that is our greatest confidence. That's, I think, the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism. Maybe I've said it here before. What is our only hope in life and death? It is that I am not my own, but belong body and soul to Jesus Christ. So we have this maturity of hope when times are hard. We also see this joy of heaven that we ought to have, this desire we have. So if you were to read chapter 33, 9 through 11, um, it says this, and this city, this is Jerusalem, shall be to me a name of joy and praise and glory before all the nations of the earth who shall hear the good that I do for them. They shall fear and tremble because of all the good and the prosperity I provide it. 
Thus says the Lord, in this place of which you say, it's a waste without man or beast. Again, that's the scoffers saying, how could God be good in this? In the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate without man or inhabitant or beast, there shall be heard again the voice of mirth, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride, the voices of those who sing as they bring their thank offerings to the house of the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. So here we see this hope that he's providing. And what's interesting is we see the, the two things in this. One, we see that Jerusalem shall be a place of celebration for the nations. All the nations of the world will stand in awe of this Jerusalem. And we also see this wedding feast that is returned. There will be joy. There will be mirth. There will be, um, uh, what's the language he uses? The voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride and those who sing as they bring offerings to the Lord. And here we see that this new covenant, part of this, finds its fulfillment in the age to come in the new heavens and in the new earth, where we see it is this new Jerusalem that descends that we see spoken about in Hebrews as well. And that will be a place of healing for all the nations. We see in Revelation 19, the wedding supper of the bridegroom and the lamb, where the groom says, come. And then the bride says to others, come. And everyone comes to this feast. So we have as Christians in this mingling of salvation and judgment, we have this joy of heaven where all of God's riches will finally fall on us. This is what separates us from prosperity gospel. Prosperity gospel looks at this and says, we get all of this now, but that is to make little of heaven, right? Jesus has come to give us that in full in heaven. And in this time, we're to call people to that spiritual freedom that's from him. And so we ought to have this hope and we should understand that we have a wonderful, secure promise in this world. And yet we have a greater hope in the world to come where all of the promises of flourishing we see here are finally given to God's people, saved by his son, invited to the wedding supper of the lamb. And our job in this time is to say, come, come to this king, come to this feast. And so that's one thing of looking out. We see in Revelation, in the very last chapter, part of the role of God's bride is to invite others to the feast. And so that's what we get to do right now. We get to share the evangelism of this new covenant, that we can relate to God in a way apart from our works, but in a way that's reliant upon the covenant-keeping king-priest, Jesus Christ. But then also, one thing we get to do is because we've seen the priest-king, we live new covenant lives, right? Chapter 31, verses 34 through 30 or 33 through 34 for this is the covenant i will make with the house of israel after those days declares the lord i will put my law within them and i will write it on their hearts and they will be i and i will be their god and they will be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying know the lord for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest declares the lord and so he's not saying we don't teach each other about God. He's saying that we won't need to teach each other about God um, in the sense where God is in our hearts. Everybody who's part of this covenant knows God. We cannot know God without being part of this covenant. And because of that, his law is written in our hearts. Our hearts have been made new. You also see this in verse chapter 32, verses 37 through 39. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries in which I drove them, and I'll bring them back to this place, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, and I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and for the good of their children after them. So what's the implications of this new covenant? The implications are that God has made our hearts new so that for the first time we are of one heart with God. We can see that Jesus' works are what save us. This righteous branch is how our sins are dealt with. And yet, 
we don't look at that and say, great, I could sin all the more. This is the assumption, the argument Paul assumes in Romans. Um, uh, uh, why can't I think of it right now? Um, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means we died to sin. And so here we see that our hearts have been made new by this covenant. Therefore, it is our joy of trusting this covenant-keeping God to live out of the newness of heart, which means we aren't saved by our obedience. We are saved by our faith in Jesus who was obedient, but our response to salvation is to live out in obedience the transformation that Jesus has done on our heart. A sign of a new covenant person is one who joyfully lives out of this new identity of having a heart saved and redeemed and transformed by King Jesus. And so how do we apply this text? We invite people to the covenant and we live as new covenant people. So that is our uh, Monday morning devotional. I went a little long today. I try to keep these around 28 to 30 minutes. We're at 32 today. So I apologize. I owe each of you who listen to this two minutes. Um, and let me pray for us and then I'll let you guys roll. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that you have provided for us a new way to relate to you, a way that um, shows how your salvation and your judgment meet in the person of Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray that causes our hearts to hope for heaven and fills us with confidence that heaven is for us because of what Jesus has done. Lord, I pray that we invite others to see the beauty of this covenant-keeping King and also their lives would show the, the joy of following his covenant-keeping rule. We pray all of this in your name. Amen. Take it easy, guys. Have a good week. We'll talk to you later.